Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. To the table, whether you're here in person with us or if you're listening online, we're glad you're here. And uh, we're starting a brand new series tonight as we uh, lead up to our Easter celebration. Lent um, happens a little bit later this month, and so we're beginning a brand new series starting tonight. And uh, so what I'd like for us to do as we begin here is I want us to just think for a moment outside of the realm of church and Christianity and think about one of the most popular topics that you could ever suggest talking about in this world, which is the topic of sin. That's a delayed response, yes. So everybody loves when the preacher wants to get up and start talking about sin, right? We all love that kind of a conversation. But let's take it outside of the realm of the church because in a lot of ways we could say that the way that sin is used in our culture today is much more colloquial than it is religious in connotation. So at the beginning, let's suggest some of the ways in which the word sin or the idea of sin is used in our modern context. It is a sin to fill in the blank in our modern context. Eat certain foods. All right, so eat certain foods, maybe not humanely raised, or you should be vegetarian, or you shouldn't be, or whatever the scenario is. Eat certain foods, all right, that might be one. What else? Wear black or brown. Ooh, it's a sin to wear. Well, I don't know about that anymore. I don't know. But it used to. But it used to be, yeah, or white shoes. After Labor Day, Day, right? Okay. But we're not talking about like regular sins that people talk about. In our culture today, it's yes. For instance, yes, like it's a sin because we're eating dessert tonight. Right. Right. Well, other ways that we do it. Sinful as you're eating it. (laughs) It's a sinful dessert, right? It's a pleasure. Yes, a guilty pleasure. What other things are considered? Sin, like it could be more serious than that. In our culture, we would say, "Oh, don't have sex before marriage." Do you think that's popular in our culture? I think in the southern culture. In the southern culture, okay. All right, I didn't grow up in the southern culture. I grew up in the New York City culture, which is different. Okay. I don't think it has the same meaning at all. It certainly doesn't have the same meaning, right? It have the same weight. So what are some things that we say that are bad in our society? We may not use the word sin, but we would equate it with something that's evil or bad that we do. Breaking the law is something that would be equated as sinful in some ways. Depends on which law you're breaking, right? How many people here maybe got here a little faster than you were supposed to because you realized that you're supposed to be here at 445? <laughs> Just tonight, and you got here a little bit late, and you were going above and beyond the speed limit is that? Breaking the law? I got your <laughs> But do we think of that as a sin? <laughs> Not so much. All right. But there are some sins in our society. Murder. Obviously, yeah. The big deep ones there. How about, here's one. Um, how we treat animals. Yeah. Like if you see someone, you know, yanking their dog by a chain around their neck or, or penning them up or treating animals in a way that we think is inhumane, right? That That's like a big no-no, right? What else in our society is a big no-no? How women are treated. Right, so if you don't treat women with equality, you know, the whole glass ceiling piece, sure, what else? What else are sin in our society? Race. Okay, so, yeah, being, um, what would be the word, prejudiced or xenophobic or something like that? Okay, good, what else? Not celebrating diversity. Not celebrating diversity, good way to say it, thank you. I was looking for the right way to, uh, (laughs) now 
but this is going out everywhere. What else? Other sins in our society. We don't use the word sin. Not accepting of someone's gender. Okay, gender or like people who are transitioning. Okay, or someone how someone wants to present themselves or abuse themselves. Okay. Anything else? I think we're missing one big one. Corporate greed. <laughs> Can talk about that for sure. I'm suggesting that there are sins of the environment. So like anything that you're doing that's contributing to global warming or not assisting in reducing your output, things like that, recycling, things like that, that can be viewed as sins within our culture. Now let's switch it out of our culture and talk about within the Christian realm or within the church. If we want to define it as you can say, sin is fill in the blank. Sin is fill in the blank. Doing something that the Bible says is wrong. Doing something the Bible says is wrong or God forbids. Okay, what else? Sin is like fill in the blank. Homosexuality. Well, I guess I was saying bigger categories. Yeah, bigger categories. So doing something that God specifically forbids, you're good. What else? Doesn't that cover it all? <laughs> so it's interesting that you say that because that's exactly my point. So we've pretty much we've narrowed down sin to be something between something I'm doing that makes God angry, sad disappointed or somehow some phrase like that right because it could be sin of omission too we could talk about the sins of omission versus commission what's the difference between those two omission is not doing something you're supposed to do whereas commission is doing something you're not supposed to do correct so what we've done here is it's oftentimes is we've narrowed it down to something like sin is rebellion against god these are all these are all phrases i heard growing up and some of you who grew up in the church may recognize some of these phrases um, here's a nice one. Um, sin is allowing evil to control your life rather than God or putting anything else, like any kind of an idol in front of God. That would be a way of defining it. Um, failing to live up to God's standards or maybe a nicer way to put it is missing God's purpose or intention for your life. Um, but generally that category of breaking God's laws, disobeying God, um, anything that you do that makes God angry. The challenge that I have or that we have as we begin this series talking about why we need a savior is that I'm afraid that we've so narrowly defined sin that we've missed the mark, no pun intended, that we've missed the mark of exactly what it is when God is talking about sin and the need for a savior. Because we've done so, we've so individualized it. We've so made it something between me and God or God and me that we've missed out on the broader context of things. So without that, here's what we end up with. We end up with sin being something that I do, or that we do individually, that upsets God, and then God has to then respond to us. The challenge with that is that takes it outside of the context of God's original creation. So if you've been a part of the table for a while, you recognize that we've been working under a very different definition of sin for quite a while. But let me ask you that before I get to our definition about that, so now that we've kind of got this idea about sin, why does God hate sin? Because the Bible does describe it that way. God hates sin. We even take our own spin on that, right? We're supposed to love the sinner, but 
hate the sin, and we're supposed to be patterning that pattern, patterning that after God. That's a hard word to say. So why is it that God hates sin? It usually manifests it manifests itself in something that was contrary to what was intended. So he he hates it because it goes against his original design, mm-hmm. his yeah. original intention. Okay. okay. Against the life and how that, that we were supposed to live, like okay. his purpose. And so that's why he hates it. Okay. I think it's hard for us to understand because anything that goes, his nature is so holy that I don't think we really get a concept of what that is. And I think that's why we have we start. One of the reasons we narrow it down. I don't think we really have a, a true concept of what the holiness of God is. That total holiness being defined as that total separateness from evil, from anything that is outside of perfection and beautiful and right. Yeah, we have no concept of how somebody could be in that way. Sure. Why else does God hate sin? Sin puts a wedge between us and him. Okay, so sin is something that blocks a relationship or, or fouls up that relationship, right? Okay. Can we expand on that one at all? Is that the only way that sin has that effect? Is that the only kind of relationship in which sin has that effect? Is it only a vertical relationship between us and God? We can also have that same kind of thing. He hates sin because of the, of the brokenness that it can bring in our relationship, not just with him, but with other people around us. It could be spouse, it could be family, just people on the street or you know people whom, with whom we have relationships. And our, the way that we live is a reflection of him. And so, like to other people who are not saved, they should be able to look at us. And when we are in sin, then it makes God look bad. Yeah, and, and I love that, that thought because it's beyond just the, the Christianity versus not Christianity. It's the whole idea that humanity, mankind, is made in the image of God. We're divine image bearers. So every time that we get involved in sin, it mars that image, right? And so we're no longer reflecting the God who created us, certainly. Yeah, there's a, that's a beautiful, not a beautiful image, but it's an image that reflects, um, you know, what that's all about, yeah. Any other reasons that you can come up with why God hates sin? Well, he loves his creation and he sees what, he knows what it does to creation. Mm-hmm. Us, everything. So, I mean, he kind of put that on terms like how a parent loves a child. You know, God's love goes beyond that. And that's, I mean, he understands that sin destroys both relationships. Yeah. And so what we've been doing at the table here for the last uh, several years is we've been trying to to develop a little bit broader sense of, um, of a definition of sin that gets us away from Listen to how much of that conversation was God and me, God and me. And we recognize that um, the working definition we've been using for a while now, let's kind of break it down a little bit, especially for those of you who are new with us, is um, the definition of sin we use here is that sin, we borrow this from Cornelius Plantinga. He's a a great theologian that I I read often. And he suggests that sin is culpable breaking of shalom. Let me say that again. It's culpable breaking of shalom. So like any other definition, we should go back and we should take a look at that, right? So what do we mean when God talks about shalom? 
What is shalom from God's perspective? I've always heard it translated as peace. Yeah. So it's peace, certainly. That's a greeting that's passed along. <clears throat> but it's deeper than that, is it not? What is shalom? What are some of the elements of shalom that we've, we've learned? It's a wholeness between God and all of creation. So there's a wholeness, the connectedness between all of creation, sure. What else? Any other way of describing shalom? Yeah, rightness, correctness. So when we get to the end of creation, at the end of Genesis chapter 2, and God looks, second, second telling of the creation story, he looks at everything, and he sees that it's it's everything that it ought, it's my very. Remember we learned that word? It's my very. It's, it's exactly the way I designed it to be. It is my dwelling place. My image bearers are here with me. Everything is in, as we like to say here, we're in right relationship with God. Everything is right between each other. And everything is right between the world around us. And God describes that as shalom, that wholeness, that completeness that was designed for us, designed for his creation. That's his plan. So now we go back from shalom and we take a step back. We go, okay, so what does it mean to break shalom? We're breaking his design. So anything that we're doing that is going against his design or thwarting his design? Okay, what else? What does it mean to break shalom? Sometimes it can be even beyond breaking, like like a, a tainting of. Okay. A tainting of that perfection, of that wholeness and completeness. Good. What else? You can do it. Come on. Talk it through. or we do anything that divides or separates or is not inclusive that does not allow that other image bearers in, certainly? Does it expand beyond just, so we've talked about, you know, so far we've talked about shalom being, you know, we've talked about it pretty horizontally. We can also disturb or break shalom going vertically too. How do we do that? As, as God's creation. We can ultimately, you can look at him and basically just totally... Ignore him. You can tell him. You can choose to to live as though he doesn't exist, right? You can make all of those choices, and then we also have the category of not just vertical. We have horizontal, and the one we never touch on because we're very uncomfortable with this: culpable breaking of shalom, right relationship with God, each other, and the world around us. When was the last time we talked about sin within the church in the context of what we are doing to the planet? to which we have been given the task of overseeing and caring for, right? So in God's eyes, all of this, anything that disturbs the original design is sin. But notice that we've added one piece to that. We've added a word called culpable. I know that's a hard word to say, but it really does sum up what we're saying. If it's culpable disturbance of shalom, what are we saying? So there's a sense in which you understand what you're doing. It means that you can assign blame or responsibility. Mm -hmm. That you had something to do with it. Okay. 
culpable, meaning I had some part to play in this. But let's be careful. To be culpable of something does not require that you know you did it. In other words, you can still be responsible for something, right? Like if you're driving down the road, and this has happened to me before, just recently, pulling off an interstate, coming up I-35 to go into Sulphur, Oklahoma. It's a two-lane exit at 70 miles an hour. When you go around the corner, you're on a six-lane highway, which is actually a bigger highway than where I-35 is at that point on, on seven, Oklahoma 7. And you make that spin to go toward, oh, and immediately the speed limit goes to 45. Within 200 yards of the exit ramp, and I was doing like 60. Boom, pulls me over. I went, like we all do, right? I don't know, and you know what his answer to me is like? I was like, I didn't know that it went to 60 like that quickly, and you know what he said? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You're still culpable, you're still responsible, right? So why is this important? Why is expanding a conversation about sin beyond just the thing that I do that makes God angry with me? Because I broke his, some guideline that he, you know, some law that he set down. How does this help us, or how does this broaden the discussion? I think it kind of helps us to have conversations about it because of that idea that you may not know what it is that you're doing. So that it opens the door to the whole um, sense of omission Mm -hmm. as well as commission, certainly. Even just like labeling, like helping people to come into understanding of what it is. So like kind of pointing out in like in ethics, the first thing you're supposed to go Attention. Yeah. You have to do something with that information you found, which is, by the way, a very biblical sense, right? You can commit a sin of omission that you are unaware of. In fact, every year in the Jewish sacrificial system, there was an offering for that very thing going, I know there were some things that I didn't realize I was doing wrong that still need covering, right? Any other ideas about why this is important that we don't focus it purely on me and what I've done that might offend God? Relationships with others. And that's huge. Because now instead of being able to go, he did that, you go, I did that. You know, so now you have much more of a understanding, uh, uh, forgiveness. So what we like to say here. And listen carefully how I say it, because I think it's important. So we believe that sin is culpable breaking of shalom, all right? And part two of that is, here's the reality of it. None of us sins in a vacuum, not a vacuum cleaner, in a vacuum. What does that mean? When we say no one sins, everything that we do has an impact, just not just on us and our relationship with God, not just necessarily us and our relationship with other people, or not just necessarily us and our relationship to creation around us. It could have furthering effects down the line, right? Because none of us sins in a vacuum. Nothing that we do is has only an effect on us. And that's the mistaken problem of, of our society, that particularly the Western society that's so me-centric, as opposed to some of the Eastern cultures that would have understand the more collective piece of it. And I just want to make sure that as we set off on this journey toward Easter together, that we recognize the broad nature of when we're talking about sin, 
as I said in my intro video, if you got a chance to watch that, it's going to be uncomfortable sometimes, these conversations, because we've not always expanded it to understand it in that sense. So now when we go and we look at our text tonight in Genesis chapter 3, I think we're going to see how this is illustrated in a much broader sense um, through the story of how sin first entered the story. Remember when we left off in chapter 2, um, at the end of chapter 2, God's creation was perfect. His relationship with man, they walked together in the garden. Everything was exactly the way that God intended it to be. And the very last commandment that he gave to Adam at the time, it was just Adam in the garden at that time, at the end of Genesis chapter 2, in verse, excuse me, in verse 16 and 17, he said, all of this, my creation, this perfect shalom that I've created for us, all of this is available to you. Eat your fill, verse 16 of chapter 2, eat your fill from all of the garden's trees, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because on the day you eat from it, you will surely die, or you will die. One more time, eat your fill from all of the garden trees. Everything is for you. But don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because on the day you eat of that, you will die. Remembering that, that's the last command. Now we pick up in chapter 3. Somebody read the first six verses. If you have it in CEB, that's best, just because we'll all be on the same page. So somebody read the first six verses of chapter 3. But now listen, listen, because I'm suggesting to you that there's some twisting, a little bit of twisting going on, on when we pick up in 3, 1 through 6 of those words. Go. The snake was the most intelligent of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say that you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, We may eat fruit from the garden's trees, but not the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. God said, Don't eat from it, and don't touch it, or you will die. The snake said to the woman, You won't die. God knows that on the day you eat from it, you will see clearly, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was beautiful, with delicious fruit, and that the tree would provide wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it, and also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then they both saw clearly, and knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made garments for themselves. Verse 8. Is that the end? That's the end. Yeah. So, twisted words, yes? It starts with the serpent, later identified as Satan, right? So the serpent twists the words, sort of, right? Mm -hmm. How so? He says you can't eat any eat. Did God really say that you shouldn't eat from any tree? Mm -hmm. Did God say that? Yeah. In fact, God said basically the opposite of that. He said you should eat from every tree that's here, except for this one. In other words, focus on abundance in God's statement. You have all of this. This is mine. Serpent turns around and says, this is what you want. Mm -hmm. right? And God didn't really say that you couldn't eat from that. Twisting the words, right? It's not, is it a really, is it, is it a lie? It's certainly with the intent to 
deceive. So yes, you would have to say anything that's done with the intent to deceive, deceive is a lie, right? So then look at Eve's response. I'm sure she went right back and quoted the words right back to him. How did she twist it? Yeah, she, not only did you say that, she doesn't really identify it. Notice, she says, we may eat, we may eat. Like, it's okay if we want to. We may eat from the garden's trees, but not the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. All right, let's give her the benefit of the doubt that everybody knew what she was referring to, that it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, even though she doesn't say it. God said, don't eat from it. And then she said, he also said, don't touch it or... You will die. Did God say that? <clears throat> Didn't, did he? What did he say? Don't eat from it. He didn't say anything about touching it. So she got two out of three things right, right? You're not supposed to you're not supposed to eat it, and if I eat it, I'm going to die. So here's the question. How did the serpent deceive Eve? In other words, what was his intent? What was he challenging in the way that he phrased all of this? The death portion behind it is something that is majorly challenging. Right? You won't really, the way you said it, you won't really die. Yeah, like, you just read it with that sure. serpent's intention of, like, surely he, you know, God is good, God is loving, he's not going to kill you for this. Okay, that's one. True. What else? Another way of looking at that is where God framed his words by abundance. The serpent is trying to cast the one minor, well, arguably major restriction, um, as sort of the status quo. That God is restrictive of you mm-hmm. as a rule. Mm-hmm. That is his nature. Yeah. Instead of And, of course, we make the assumption that that might be like, this is semiotics, right? That that's the only tree that looked like that. So let's say, let's just pick it. Len likes to say, my friend Len, so we like to say it's a pomegranate. Okay, apple, pomegranate, doesn't matter, right? It's a fruit. We're assuming that's the only one like that, mm-hmm. right? For all we know, there could have been hundreds of exactly the same ones just around it that had everything. It's just like, this one right there, that one's mine. So don't eat from that. What's the, just, you ever had kids? It's like, you can have everything, just not that thing. What do they want? Yeah. That one thing. Right? So it's challenging the authority of God, challenging the veracity of his statements. Is he really saying it? Like, you know, parents, like, if you do that again, and then I, I how many times I've heard parents say that? Like, if you do that again, I'm going to do this, and then I watch a kid do it again. And then, if you do that again, right? So it's challenging the veracity. What else? Challenging the goodness of God, right? That God's holding back from you. God has knowledge and things that you want, and he's holding it back from you. And by the way, where was Adam, while Eve talked about the serpent, talked with the serpent about eating the forbidden fruit? Apparently he's there. Very yeah. much beside her. He's sitting there right there. And by the way, um, lest we jump too much on Eve and her twisting of the words, remember, uh, according to the story, from what we know, she wasn't there in Genesis chapter 2. Mm-hmm. 
So she's received that information. So it's almost like you could almost say like Adam maybe is the one who put some of – you could suggest that he put some of those thoughts in her mind. He added things of you can't touch it. You know, basically, you know, just like, hey, don't look at it, don't touch it, don't do anything. Don't That's off limits, right? Right. So he's kind of, you know, maybe in a form of protection or whatever, said, don't get anywhere near it. And she's assumed that it's that way, right? And he's sitting right there next to it the whole entire time. So here's my question. So how could Adam have brought about a better ending to this part of the story? It kind of seemed like a game of telephone where he, like, it went into his head and it like got discombobulated a little and he's like, oh, okay, this this is all the things that God actually said. So he could have gone back and corrected, he could have corrected her faulty quotation of what God said. He was like, no, 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 Eve. That's not what he said. I may have told you that's what he said, but really what he said was, but he didn't do that. He sort of written it down. He didn't do that? Well, it's kind of, I mean, the way he's doing it is like he's playing it safe. I can blame Eve if Shalom because he was designed to be the leader. He did exactly zero and leading in the situation. So he's breaking God's purpose for him to be the leader. To like the guide his wife. Be careful because you know the end of the story. Mm-hmm. That you don't project that actually. Can we hold that thought about right. he's supposed to be the leader? We're going to actually get that in just a minute. Right. At this point, everything is perfect in the garden. Male, female, there's not headship versus submission or whatever language you want to use. It's not there yet. Actually, we might as well just jump there. I want to ask one question before we jump there. It was such a perfect transition, but I have to ask this question. Um, Why do you think Adam chose to ignore God's direction and follow Eve instead? Because he didn't think he was going to be responsible because if she did it, then the responsibility lies with her. So if it turns out good, good for him. If it turns out bad, that's on her. You think? Mm-hmm. Wow, you guys are awful. <laughs> I mean, you think the worst of this dude. Well, that's the way I would have done it. <laughs> there's, there's no evil yet. I mean, it's... it's I, but I don't... I, 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 there's I, no evil. I, I, but he's I, thinking, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? So you happen? think he's playing both sides? He's like, yeah. what's the worst thing that's going to happen? I think it's like so. Wait. So if you said, "What's the worst thing that's going to happen?" So you're thinking that maybe he didn't believe God when he said, "If you do this, you're going to die." Yes. Because he turned. If you believe that God said that, and your wife hands it to you, "Mm -hmm." you. (laughs) girl, if you die, I'll bury you, but I'm not eating that. It does bring up an interesting perfection issue. Kind of throws that into a (laughs) argument. Yeah. Yeah. Because it is still perfection there. So he's supposed to be. Pure and saintly and wouldn't have he, it. Basically, the idea of the story is that he was faced with exactly the same choice that Eve. It's not like she coerced him, she didn't do anything. He knew from the beginning he should have known better than her because he's the one who heard from God's mouth. And he also didn't believe, right, in the goodness of God. So, lest we throw this all on Eve and throw it all on the women, there is equal blame to be passed about here, right? So, now then, when you get to. Um, chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, quickly. Somebody read 7 through 13 because now we'll begin to see some of the immediate, immediate consequences to sin entering this. Uh, let's rephrase it. We get to see the immediate consequences of how their disturbance of shalom, their culpable disturbance of shalom, 
what the immediate effects were. Listen for those. See if we can pick them out. 7 to 13. Anybody? Then they both saw clearly and knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made garments for themselves. During the day's cool evening breeze, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the Lord God in the middle of the garden's trees. The Lord God called to him, man, or called to the man and said to him, where are you? The man replied, I heard your sound in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who gave me, you gave me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. The Lord God said to the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the snake tricked me and I ate. <laughs> so let's pick out what are some of the some of the consequences that Adam and Eve immediately experienced after they chose to culpably break God's shalom or disobey the instructions. Pick one. Now they're naked and they're embarrassed about it. So that's the word we would use for that in modern day terminology is shame. What's the difference between shame and guilt? Shame is knowing that you did wrong, but you did it anyway. Guilt is like an ongoing progress of knowing that, hey, this happened because of me or because of something that I did, and it might not actually be your fault. You're kind of tiptoeing around it, so maybe a good way to think about it is this. Um, guilt says, I did something wrong, and I feel bad about it. Mm -hmm. All right, That's guilt, or you don't have to feel bad about it. I did something wrong, feel guilt. Shame is, something's wrong with me. You see the difference between that? One is based on something that I've done. They didn't experience guilt. They experienced first shame. Something's wrong with me. They recognize something is not very anymore. And so they're like, uh-oh, we don't have any clothes on, so we have to do that. So shame, what else? Blame. They played the blame game. How did they do that? She gave it to me, so I did it, so she should be responsible. Yeah, but... The snake gave it to me, and I did it, so he really is responsible. The and then who did Adam pass the buck to? God. God. Yeah, how did he you pass it to God? God? You gave her to me. So yeah, the woman God. that you gave to me deceived me. So instant blame game, not taking responsibility. They were they uh, the introduction of shame. They lied to God. So lying enters in. They hid from God, so hiding. Because, why do they hide? Because they are shame. They're shame, but they're also afraid. So fear. So you have shame enters into the picture. Fear, hiding, lying, blame shifting, making up excuses for their action, for their actions. They ended up denying, right? Basically, just denying that they had any culpability whatsoever. I was fooled. I was tricked. It was somebody else's fault. And now, we don't have time to do it, we didn't do it in verse 6, but there was a progression, you know, depending on your translation, it was like um, Eve, she looked, she saw that the tree was beautiful, she looked at the fruit, and, and she really, it was delicious, and she desired, it, that she wanted the wisdom it would give her, right? Mm -hmm. So there's one other piece to this that we kind of glossed over, and I didn't mean to, which was this idea that she was no longer comfortable with the position 
Remember, God said that they were made just a little bit lower early on in Genesis 1. Let us make man in our image. A little bit later in chapter 3, verses, I think it's verse 23. And, you know, they are, they want to become like us. We read that as a Trinitarian reference. And I'm going to argue that it's not a Trinitarian reference because of the usage of this word Elohim. We won't get into it tonight, but this idea that there were gods, lowercase g, this, these heavenly beings that were around before man came, right? And God said, let's make them in our image, right? And they were not happy with that. They didn't like that they were a little bit lower. They wanted to have that knowledge of good and evil, right? So that now ends up in the picture. But then I want us to notice now, going on, that in verse 14, so not only were those immediate context, immediate um, uh, consequences, hiding, shame, fear, Blame passing, what were some of the other, they lied to God, all of those. But it goes beyond that. See, if that was the end of the story, we'd have a great definition of sin. You did something that messed up your relationship. But let's look at what happened. Somebody read 14 to 20. We'll end at 20 here. The Lord God said to the snake, Because you did this, you are the one cursed out of all the farm animals, out of all the wild animals. On your belly you will crawl, and dust you will eat every day of your life. I will put contempt between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. They will strike your head, but you will strike at their heels. To the woman, he said, I will make your pregnancy very painful. In pain you will bear children. You will desire your husband, but he will rule over you. To the man, he said, because you listened to your wife's voice, and you ate from the tree that I commanded, don't eat from it. Cursed is the fertile land because of you. In pain you will eat from it every day of your life. Weeds and thistles will grow for you, even as you eat the field's plants. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. Until you return to the fertile land, since from it you were taken. You are soil, to the soil you will return. So what are now so now we've moved beyond just immediate consequences, right? Although there's some here. But this idea that you know that sin has both immediate and ongoing consequences. What are some of those ongoing consequences of their, Adam and Eve, and now we'll add the serpent in, the culpable disturbance of shalom, what are the long-term consequences? Contempt. Say again? Contempt. Contempt for? Well, so the, the woman will have contempt for the snake. All right, so that fear, that that... That, uh, ooh, I hate snakes thing. Okay. Um, and I don't think that's just women, but I mean, hum well, humanity as a whole, right? Having a bad relationship with snakes, right? Okay. It says, it says I'll put contempt between the woman and you, between her offspring and yours. So yep. Are like, you reading ESV? Um, CB. I will put contempt between you and the woman. Between contempt. Your offspring right. Yours. All right. So the broken relationship, so that describes that contempt. What's, how, how do we define contempt? Like a disgust for, right? So you have built in there a disgust for a part of his creation. But also between her offspring. So it's a perpetual contempt. Exactly. That's my point. So not just not just you, Eve. Every person who has descended from Eve, whether you believe this is a literal Eve or this is symbolic of humanity as a whole, mm -hmm. the idea being that every one of us now suffers from that same contempt between her offspring and creation, this part of creation, but what else? The big one's death. Well, ultimately death, but let's get to that one in a minute. Yeah. But what happens before that? 
There's another contempt in there, potential contempt in there, because now man, Adam, was now elevated, mm-hmm. right? So now you have this, how does it describe there? Yeah, your husband will use that, he'll rule over you. In other words, now you are in subjection. You were on this level, right? And now, as a part of that, you have to sit there in, in, in subjection to him. What else? Uh, pain during childbirth. Yeah, so, and we can, we can talk about this for just a brief second at the end. But yes, this idea that now, um, because, oh, how do I say this nicely? Um, I would argue that the skin that they were covered with was actual skin. It's a Hebrew thing. Um, up to then, if they were made in the image of God, God doesn't have a body, a physical body. So that idea of skinning them, putting flesh on them is another way of saying he enfleshed them. That enfleshing brings with it pain in childbirth because now instead of God just saying, let me borrow a, a, a rib from you and forming another human being out of the earth, now there's another way that happens and in the process of that it's going to be very painful. Right? And because I've had to enflesh you now, ultimately flesh dies. So that's how that all piece fits together. So there's certainly that piece in there. And something that I didn't really ever get from the text before, because we think of like how man has to toil now. Like, like it's hard to get the food that you need and all of that. But um, when he says in pain you'll eat from it every day of your life, that maybe suggests that there wasn't hunger before. If you didn't and have so a human now you body, have to do it every day. If you weren't enfleshed, mm-hmm. you didn't need to eat. But you could. To just enjoy <laughs> it. Yeah. Yes. Right. Exactly. Because like, it would just yeah. taste good. It would just right. be a pleasant exactly. thing to do. Not because yeah. oh, that looks good. Let me have that. Yeah. Exactly. So all of this. So all I'm trying to do and illustrate in this opening piece to our series is the broadened effect of how this one. Uh, couple or triad if you want to throw the serpent in and their culpable breaking of shalom has this ongoing effect on all of us but even in the midst of that I would be remiss if I didn't end tonight by reminding us that in Genesis chapter 3 in verse 15 it's the very first description the very first promise that one day one of the offspring from Eve would come and it's the first promise of that redeemer that's the Messiah who would come through the offspring of the woman who would come. Yes, Satan is going to strike the head, but he will bruise the heel. That is the promise that God is not satisfied with shalom being disturbed. And so as we continue on in our study, we'll see how this sin did spread. It spread throughout humanity in the chapters that follow in Genesis. But ultimately, the final word has not yet been written. The final word capital W-O-R-D, in Jesus Christ has come. The enfleshment of God in human form. His penalty, dying on the cross for us, paid that penalty, but the final word is yet to be written because Genesis 21 and 22 says the ultimate goal of God through that death is to restore everything back to that Eden, back to Shalom. And all we have to look at now is to look at the world and recognize that Shalom doesn't exist in the way that God designed it, Mm -hmm. but ultimately that's where the story is headed. So the last word has yet to be written. And how do we, I don't know how to word this, reconcile maybe, that it seems that all of this can go back to God because we always say that there is sin because humans humans did it. But 
God created us to want and to be capable of making those decisions. So it's almost like God set us up. Did you say that out loud? I know. Because <laughs> you can't say that God didn't have control over that situation. Right. So it's. Yeah. He's omnipotent, then you can't say he couldn't have made us perfect. Yes. It's, you know, oh gosh, we don't oh, have time. Yeah, yeah, but if we were perfect, then we would also be God. Oh. Right. So there is that well, piece where a little... So were they God before? No. no. They were a lesser. A lesser God. They were lesser, so... So you have this. Uh, you don't have time <laughs> Someday I'll do it. Um, I've done a study here. Some of you have been a part of it. It's called the unseen realm, and it, it goes through this idea that when we see those First Testament references that are talking about we, um, there is a plurality of gods. Hear me right now on the podcast too. Lowercase G Elohim. So if you read in there, it says the Lord God. That's a differentiation. This is Elohim of the most Elohim. This is God. We're still monotheistic, but there were, are these created beings referred to as Elohim um, that are gods, that have some role in what's happening in the world and the fall and all of that, and we are below that. They have some knowledge of right and wrong that we don't have, right, and yet still the ability to fall because we saw that in, in Satan's fall that's described in other passages, right, being cast out. So... Um, that's a difficult one to answer. It's like, oh, you gave us the ability to choose, so you set us up. It's a logical argument, but it's also a logical argument from a fallen perspective of we still want to have someone to blame. And I'm not saying, I'm not pointing at you, but it's, it's part of that tendency that comes with fallen humanity now to always be looking for, well, if I didn't have the opportunity, if I wasn't set up, I might not have made that choice. I understand it. It's we just don't have time to get into it, but maybe in the weeks to come we'll we'll develop that a little bit further. Sounds like a good Paul argument. Yes, it does. <laughs> yes, just get it. Just kind of have enough overwhelming evidence to do it. All right. Well, thank you everyone for coming out tonight. This, um, let's just uh, close our time tonight in prayer, and then I'll invite you back again um, next week to the tables. We'll continue our discussion. We'll see how this then spread through all of creation as we jump into the story of Noah. That'll be next week. All right, let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to gather around your table that you've ultimately given us a seat at your kingdom table. You've restored us back to relationship with you, and um, we thank you that you were willing to pay that penalty on our behalf. And now as we uh, turn our attention and we take our journey toward Lent, as we prepare for that, would you allow us to be open to all of the areas in our own lives where we are culpably disturbing shalom, and point those out to us so that we might better reflect you as your image bearers. For we make our prayer in the name of Christ. God's people said, Amen. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. We are saving a seat for you at the table.